You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello there, Stuart Goldsmith here. Today on The Comedian's Comedian, we are talking to Laura Lex. This is a conversation that we had at the Edinburgh Festival at the Place Hotel on York Place. Do check that out if you're a baller. Um, This conversation delighted me. And uh, as you can hear, there is a big emotional bit for me, at least. (laughs) I think uh, Laura was in the process of uh, exorcising a lot of her emotions on stage. And we'll talk about that. Uh, And there is a bit towards the end where it really gets me. Um, And uh, I I was so pleased to have this conversation. She's such a a talented comic and things appear to be going her way. We're going to start off by talking about how she was having one of those Edinburgh's where it's all going off. And uh, and since then, I'm happy to say she uh, is about to feature on the Live at the Apollo Christmas special. Um, she's doing some... What other bits and bobs did she mention? Oh, uh, from the 20th to the 23rd of February, you can see the show that we're talking about trying at the Soho Theatre in London. I'm sure she'll be touring it afterwards. Um, let's get stuck into how a bright and bubbly club comic and award-winning MC uh, gets pushed to be more vulnerable than her instincts would ordinarily allow and uh, to get some big, big laughs out of some very difficult subject matter. It's quintessential ComCom. This is Laura Lex. Laura Lex, hello. Hello. <laughs> How is your show going here at the Edinburgh Festival? <laughs> Having just said, let's not make it too Edinburgh-centric. I saw your show last night and I thought it was fantastic. Thank you. And I feel like it's... Uh, I'm not going to use the word buzz, but I feel like a lot of people think it's fantastic. Do you do you feel? Are you riding high on your show? Yeah, I am. I'm. I've never done anything this personal before, so I'm riding that wave that a lot of people have ridden before me of going. This is amazing that people like it, and that feels amazing. But then even the tiniest criticisms are hurting so much more than oh because it's much more personal yeah Yeah, okay and because every time it isn't perfect I feel like an idiot for taking something that was the biggest thing that's ever happened in my life and using it for an Edinburgh show and I feel gross for doing that part of the time do you know what I mean like it's all just a bit more intense this year uh and luckily well not no not luckily I'm not gonna let myself say luckily it's been brilliant because I've worked really hard on it and I've, it's a good show. So a lot of the response has been amazing, which has really, really been great. But then just any tiny chink of not even actual negativity, just a, anything less than glowing is just 
been tears in the background. And you are really, your show is not simply saying a thing happened to me, but your show is saying a thing is ongoing. Yeah, yeah. So, do you want me to explain? Tell us about the show. So, I had, um, uh, well, it was described to me by my therapist, not in terms of the physicalisation of it, but in the mental way. I had postnatal depression without having a child. So, um, I had all of the depression that goes along with worrying about keeping a child alive but preconception and uh, then went on to have two years of not being able to conceive anyway (laughs) rendering the whole thing pointless um uh and i'm still unable to conceive for some reason we don't know why um and that's where my life is now uh so this show was really had to be written because it's all that's been on my mind (laughs) And I, mean, I absolutely, I, I really uh, can uh, relate to that idea of I have to talk about this now because it's ongoing. Um, at the same time, I wonder if I kind of... Is there, is there a line that you need to tread whereby you make sure that we know you're OK? Yes, and I found that line when previewing this show because there were definitely a few previews where it was... Uh, Eggy in the room, <laughs> where I hadn't found the line. Um, what I really tried to do with this show was the first thing I did was the jokes. I just wrote an hour of jokes fully on depression and the pregnancy stuff and the trying, and all of the jokes came first. And then I worked with Jessica Fosterkew as a director, and she said, You've got to be more revealing about yourself in this show. She said, the, the jokes are fine, like they're what you want to be doing, but if you can be vulnerable, it will change what this show is. And that's when we started adding the the stoppages came afterwards. And weirdly... When, by the, what do you mean by the stop? I know what you mean, but can you tell us so, what you mean by the stoppages? I've tried to be really honest about things in the show, so there's just a couple of points where it's not funny for a second, and I, I talk about that, or... Um, yeah, where I, where I just kind of don't tell a joke for a second and just go, so there's what I really think, there we go. And then it's back into a joke. Those, those all got threaded into the show afterwards. And once I'd done that, I think the previews got less eggy after that, weirdly, because I think when I was trying to be too bravado about it, people were seeing through that and kind of being like, no, you can't be this, this joke, 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 joke about something like this. And then the second I was honest in it, it was all much easier, which was weird because you'd think that would be the other way around. Your instinct would be to make sure it's consistently funny mm. and that would that would keep a lightness in the room. Yeah, yeah. But actually what's happening is people are going, we need to know that you yeah. register this is important. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. otherwise, but I mean, what's the risk there? That they you look like someone trying to deal with a bad thing with humour. Yeah. We need to know that actually you... Yeah, you look like that drunk guy in the pub that's had too much to drink going, but I don't even love the bitch anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have looked like that a little bit. But it's my instinct to just go jokes, 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 because I'm a club comic, really. I'm not, you know, I've never had an Edinburgh like this before. I've not done a show like this before. I don't write for people. I don't do TV stuff. I just, I just turn up to clubs at weekends and do that. And so that's what I know is jokes every what what in a club set what do we do 
30 to 40 seconds, there's probably a punchline, unless you're closing a particularly nice club and you've got that luxury. So that's the comedy I know, and it's the comedy I like. I'm not, not really a fan of a chat for an hour that's got a joke every couple of minutes. I like punchy, straight-up stand-up, and that's my instinct to do. Which was funny, actually, that you saw yesterday's show, because... As this show's had a bit of buzz, which makes me feel crazy saying that, but as that's happened, more and more people have come because they have a preconception of the show. And so you saw one yesterday where they just wanted a sad play about a woman. Well, before we get deeper into the the themes of your show and the structure of your show and all all the other stuff we'd like to talk about, let's just introduce you to listeners who might not be aware of you. Your, your, and this can't help but loop back into the thing I've said we'll talk about in a minute, but your, your uh, relationship with an audience is you are incredibly bright and bubbly and a warm, friendly presence. Do you think that's fair? I think so, yeah. Like, that's what we see. Yeah. That's like, you can see a lot of older people going, oh, yeah. do you know what I mean? It's like, we want to scoop her up somehow. Do you know what I mean? You're, you're physically quite small. Yeah. And um, you are smiley yeah. and bubbly and friendly, which isn't too... I'm saying that is your personality. I'm not saying that's in place of jokes somehow. You were also an award-winning MC. Yeah. A, a multiply award-winning... <laughs> no, get, no? Do you, I've been nominated. Multiply nominated, times, yeah. sure. I don't win very <laughs> I don't win very often. <laughs> but, you know, you, you have a very... Uh, you have a good grasp on what your relationship with an audience is. Yeah, I think so. I think it's from all the MCing and... Uh, and club stuff. I, I MC a lot because I'm happy on stage. So I've I've learned that, like, getting in and out of it. And I'm very bored easily of material. So the ad-libbing is my favourite bit. So I think that's come from that, I think. And talk to us about how you brought yourself to stand-up. Um, well, I wanted to be an actress. Uh, and I was at uni doing... Well, I went to Kent University because they do this three-year drama course. Well, it's all changed now, but in those days. They did this three-year drama course that then you specialised in the fourth year on something, and I went there because they did a radio production specialism in the fourth year that I wanted to do, and then they cancelled that in my first year, and then they cancelled the acting specialism, and I was like, oh, bollocks, okay. Um, And then the only things left were directing or contemporary performance something or other and I realized about two years into uni that I'd gone to the wrong university because it was very like I mean I loved it and and stuff but the course was very modern theater and rolling around and stuff which was not my bag so I had to change direction and stand-up comedy was one of the other fourth year options and I desperately didn't want to do contemporary performance. <laughs> so I did stand-up and I'd already... That's a, sorry, that, that's a completely <laughs> unique origin story as far as I'm aware. <laughs> the option was withdrawn and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as a result I had to do stand-up. Yeah, that was pretty much it. It was the only one with an element of actual getting up and performing that wasn't in... Well, I don't want to slag it off because it's it's a great art form. It's just not for me, all the contemporary stuff. Um, and I'd already been doing improv comedy for quite a while at uni. There was uh, an improv group that's now gone on to be The Noise Next Door that were just a bunch of us drama student kids that all used to do a thing. Um, I can't remember what we even called it. Something like, what's line is it anyway to be hilarious? Or <laughs> something horribly ridiculous. Uh, and, uh, and then... Um, 
So I would, yeah, and then I just started doing the stand-up course and I'm a real academic nerd, so I got really into the, the stand-up course and part of the course was like a psychoanalysis, I suppose, of, of comedy and what comedy is and um, breaking down joke structure and looking at the origins of humour and I loved all of that, like the the thing that always sticks with me is like we, we don't know why humans laugh um, specifically we we know that we're the only species that do laugh the way we do because we're bipedal and our respiratory system is set up for that um, and other animals smile but often teeth are an aggression thing mm. whereas us and I think some monkeys do it as a like um, a friendly thing um, so I found all of that fascinating. And then also we did, uh, you had to do 10 gigs and do a portfolio of how those gigs had done and how the room affected them and what was the science of a big airy ceilinged room versus a little cave and all that. And I just found it really addictive. So I think I did 40 gigs instead of 10. Um, and what and sort of environments were those gigs? Were they at college? Were they in... Mixture. So some of them, I think you did three or four at the uni in one of the bars that was emceed by the guy that ran the course and then others you popped out and did the London circuit so Canterbury was like an hour from London so did Lion's Den that gong show Um, I don't know if it exists anymore and Monkey Business I did Mm -hmm. that one and King Gong at the comedy store to see what a gong show felt like differently so I tried to pick different um things of it and Do do you think you had a different experience in your first 40 gigs because you had this kind of ulterior motive of course credit. Yeah, I think so, because I definitely didn't think I was going to carry on after the course. So I entered So You Think You're Funny in those 40 gigs just because I didn't think I'd ever carry on with comedy. So um, I did it, and I thought, OK, well, we'll take that one off. I had no intention of carrying on, and then I don't really know why I did. <laughs> I think I wasn't very good at it and I don't like not being very good at things um but then also on the flip side of that I was just good enough for how new I was that I made the final of a few competitions and then was terrible at the finals um so then it meant that there was no agent interest in me no like buzz at all I wasn't one of the rising stars and I just got left alone to be bad for a long time and work out how to do it and And then, I don't know, I just carried on. I genuinely don't know why I carried on doing it, other than it's really hard to get auditions as an actress and I'm five-foot brunette, not particularly anything to look at, so I wasn't going to get any of the dream roles. I was going to get the roles that every other actress gets because I looked like every other actress. Whereas with stand-up, nobody gives you permission. You just turn up and do it. So nobody stopped me and I didn't stop myself. So this is Laura talking to her at the the Place Hotel in Edinburgh. Thanks once again to them for allowing us some space to record. She's such a delight to talk to. And I think it's fascinating, as you you have heard and will continue to hear in this interview, the way in which someone who has been known for a long time to the circuit as an excellent MC, a very bright and bubbly, uh, I think that word bubbly probably follows her around, um, but a very engaging, very funny stage presence, and how she has kind of brought those skills to bear on a new and much harder subject and and the success that she's had. She's really managed to pull that off. She's managed to sort of sidestep from being 
um, or from being thought of as what Patton Oswalt would have as that, you know, that, that thing we all fear, funny but who gives a fuck. And actually she's managing, as we speak, to to turn herself into someone who is being thought of in very uh, serious and professional, not maybe not serious is the right word, but very meaningful terms. So uh, that is a really fascinating journey. And I think it's what a lot of people, I think at one point Laura describes herself as a road act. I think it's what a lot of road acts are desperate to prove that they have the chops, not just to smash it in a club where, you know, fringe critics aren't going to care how well you do, but also, despite that being a very difficult thing, but also to actually bring those skills to bear on speaking of one's own truth and uh, and interrogating something, being vulnerable. And uh, we're going to hear a lot more about that in just a moment. Really, really enjoyed this one. I'm sure you're enjoying it too. As I mentioned, Lex is at Soho. Le- Who refers to her as Lex? I've just abbreviated her in my notes and then uh, seemed rude. Laura Lex is at the Soho Theatre in February. A ticket link you can find in the show notes. Uh, alongside a ticket link for my own stand-up tour of End Of, which is going to be at the Soho Theatre, I can now reveal, uh, in May. So uh, do get tickets uh, for them at comedianscomedian.com slash tour. Looking forward to three nights in the downstairs at Soho, where you may have seen me last time. Love that room. Uh, the T-shirts, uh, the ComCom T-shirts, which, I mean, I, I've been cagey about this. I'm just going to tell you what they are. It's a grey, lovely, soft, sport grey T-shirt uh, with a black and white logo designed by Lise Richardson of leaserichardsonart.com. Uh, and it's a hive with some bees flying around it and beautiful lettering saying, fuck them. Uh, but it, you can't see it because it, it's kind of obscured so you could wear it in public or around children without uh, feeling like you were going to offend anyone. That, of course, is the punchline to the famous beekeepers joke, which I was able to tell Barry Cryer on an episode of this podcast some hundred or so ago. Uh, Barry, I believe, is now doing great. Uh, lots of people have been uh, uh, expressing their sympathy for Barry on the ComCom Facebook group uh, after he fell. And uh, I don't know if he had a break. He hurt his leg somehow. Maybe it was a break or a, a sprain. I'm not sure. But he is apparently in uh, high spirits and uh, we can all stop worrying about Barry. Everyone form a protective circle around Barry. Um, more from this interview. There are some extra bits with, uh, from this interview with Laura about how she made changes in her mindset that helped her improve. Um, and we talk about some other useful, painful experiences, including a warning for people considering a certain student comedy competition and the differences, more on the differences between what audiences and industry are looking for in a festival show. All of that available only to insiders on the Insiders Club podcast that you can subscribe to by going to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, along with a host of other uh, exciting things on that podcast, all of the extras from past and future shows, uh, other little projects that we're doing, and access to the workspace where we talk to each other as if we're in an office all day. So, uh, but kind of like a fun office. It's not much of a sales point, isn't it? Come and be in an office with loads of well, maybe it is. Maybe you like office life. I've never really experienced it. But um, I certainly like having a little app on my phone that pings and we have little chats and uh, it's a bit more intimate than the Facebook group, basically. So that's all of that. Um, and oh, just on that, there is a new episode of Comedy Critique where we look back at and critique the work uh, collaboratively uh, of Janan Yunus. And uh, and also Christian Tolbert is our new victim uh, for the next series of uh, critiques. So that's all on the private podcast from comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. That's everything. Let's get back to the rest of my conversation with Laura Lex. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We said buzz in inverted commas a few times earlier on. That's my pet theory. Buzz is when comics are recommending you because they're the only people who have no reason you know they're not being paid they're not being flirted with by prs <laughs> they don't you know they get nothing out of it so the only people you can trust at a festival are yeah. the other comedians and comedians see everything in a show comedians see the structure and they don't comedians attribute everything that's good about a show to the comic doing it i don't think reviewers and audiences and other people do that like comics get that everything about that show you've done intentionally, whereas sometimes you look at the reaction of people that don't understand what goes into making that painfully over preview and and writing session, and they go, oh, it's a good job she's lively, because some of the jokes are dark. And you go, nope. She's done that specifically. <laughs> it's a good job. Oh, she lucky. Knows, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She knows who she is. Was that levelled at you this year, that specific criticism? Yeah. I mean, I've had some bonkers stuff said this year. It's blown my mind. I've, I've, <laughs> I think my favourite bit, which is a slight paraphrase, but basically a review said, I rely on jokes to keep the laughs going throughout Fuck the me. show. Yeah, I've had that. Um, that, that was really funny. Just... Um, what else have I had this month? I think my favourite... Well, yeah, so I had a, a glowing review that, that said, if there is a niggle, it's that some of the routines are a bit too polished and feel like they could happen in a comedy club. Um, and gave me three stars. And then said a little editor's note underneath, this show is better than three stars. Um, but basically... They gave you three stars and then said it was yeah, better than yeah. three stars. And then said, uh, but it's not four stars. If I could give it 3.49 stars. Just like, don't hurt yourself, mate. Do what you want to do. God, I leave it to the listener to imagine the disgust on my face hearing that. My God. But I just thought, that's OK. Like, you can think what you've liked about sure. it, but to do a glowing review and the only criticism be that I could take some of these routines, which are all firmly on topic and put them into a comedy club, I'll take that as praise. If you want to give that to me as a criticism that some of this really deeply personal confessional show would work on a Saturday night, throw that criticism at me all day because that's my job at the end of this month. I've tried to write about anxiety whilst suffering anxiety and I found it hellish. I found I would just put myself into the same spiral of focusing on the negative thoughts. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't sufficiently out of the woods yet to be able to look back on it. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think the previews for this show were really hard on me. Um, because when you're previewing, you're, you, you do some doodling and some sketching and you, you piece together an hour. And then you go out and you go, is this it? And sometimes bits of it are it and sometimes bits of it aren't it. And then I'd go away and I'd have to pull it all apart again. And pulling it all apart again meant thinking about it all again to get back to the bits that it was. So that was exhausting and scary and 
awful. Actually being in Edinburgh and doing it every day now that it's a set thing and I'm not messing about with it and rewriting it is lovely because doing it on stage, it is... um, Being on stage is where I'm best. That's my best time. That's when I'm my best self, I think. That's when I feel most in control. That's when I understand the dynamic of me with other people the best. So talking about it there, where I feel like I'm an expert on stage, is so much easier than talking and thinking about it when I'm just stupid me off stage, because stage me is is better at communicating so I actually like that I like that doing it there because by the time it's on stage I've distilled the cyclone thoughts down to the bits that have proved over months of previewing and now being here to be the most efficient communication and so I trust that I'm making sense, whereas when I'm rambling at you now, I'm, it's less coherent. That's completely coherent, what you said. OK, cool. I, I, I'm loving performing this show, and I, I was scared that I'd done it too quickly, and I was scared that it would be too much. And actually, no, I think it's been a really good thing to do because I've boiled down how I feel about it and I've taught myself to be in control of it a bit more. Is it cathartic? No, I don't think so. Communicating with people afterwards about it is cathartic. Finding those other people that have just had the same thing or have gone, that was exactly how my thought processes go and I'm so glad I'm not the only one. That's lovely. I don't think it's cathartic. But it's definitely good. (laughs) Talk to me about the writing process of the show and how it differed to your usual... how it differs to your usual writing process. Because there are... One of the things that is really notable about your show is there are big, chunky, TV-ready bits of stand-up. You know, big, here's a premise, let's get everything out of that premise. Topper, 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 topper. So is that... is Is it your funniest show? Are the funniest bits of this show funnier than anything you've written before? Mm, that's a good question. Um... To me, well, it depends what funny is, I think, because I reckon I've definitely got routines that would smash better because they're on more relatable subjects. I reckon Tyrannosaurus Lex probably had the most excessively funny stuff, but I do think trying has the biggest uh, measure between potential for laughs and laughs. Does that... Oh, go on, what do you mean, what do you mean? So, like, so, um, Tyrannosaurus Lex had a big section about how happily married I am. I don't like being negative about love and relationships on stage, so I did a big bit in that show about loving being married and loving my husband. So, um, so if you put potential for getting laughs out of relationships at, like, an eight, because that's easy to do, the laughs I got for that bit can be a ten, so they're point two. 
so this show, I do a whole bit about um, uh, about what's in this show. So I do a joke in that show about how the weight I put on on antidepressants was preferable to the weight I'd have lost had I killed myself without taking them. I reckon the potential for laughs from a suicide antidepressant joke are maybe a three or a four, and yet some days that will get a ten, some days that will get a six or a seven. So that's a three to a seven. (laughs) (laughs) Totally, totally. I'm with you. (laughs) So, so, yeah, in some ways it's definitely the best writing I've ever done and the most original writing I've ever done. Um, The thing I'm most proud of, and I've forgotten your question, so I'm really sorry, and I will... No, you've already answered it. Um, The thing I'm most proud of with this show is that the whole show is about the subject, that I didn't want to do the, like, so the Edinburgh cliche is the 40 minutes of pow, 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 pow. Oh, a sad thing happened. I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to look back at this show and wish that I'd done more on the topics that were interesting. So I set up a bit at the top for maybe seven to ten minutes um, and then... I'd start telling the story from a very early point in the show so that I've got time to cover everything that's important to me in the show. And I'm really proud of that because there are bits in there that are big set pieces. There's the big set piece about trying to shop when you have anxiety, and that is a big glossy set piece, but it is still also 100% on that subject of anxiety. And the the, the fish tank scene, which is 100% true, (laughs) um, that is a big running around the stage, playing silly characters, but it's also absolutely a story about tropical fish and the anxiety of babies dying. Mm. And I'm really proud of that, that, that... I can and could and will put those bits into a club set and on television, hopefully, and I will. And, and, and they're what I want to be talking about. I don't, I, they're not filler in my eyes. And I'm really proud of having done that. that. That was probably the difference with this show, was that when I first previewed it, when was the first preview? Probably back in Leicester, first of all. I didn't have any of the France stories, which is the the through line through the show as a holiday I went on last year with my family to recuperate a little bit. And um, I didn't have any of that, so those poor people in Leicester sat... No, it was the Bill Murray in London. It wasn't Leicester. It was the Bill Murray in in Angel. They just sat through an hour of jokes about climate change and depression, (laughs) like bang, 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 because I'd done a writing session with Stephen Grant to just try and get the juices flowing because I was too scared to think about climate change enough to write about it. So I sat down with Stephen, who is just an expert gag writer, and we just teased out, like, my light, silly... Not si- Yeah, silly in places, silly voices and silly mm. characters and stuff. We teased out how to make that work. We had bits about... Um, about how deforestation affects orangutans um, because they they never go back to the same bed, so they make a new bed every night. Mm. Uh, so if even they can't be asked to recycle, why are we bothering? <laughs> so all this kind yeah. of stuff yeah. but that was really triggering for me, we turned it into jokes. 
So the Bill Murray people, bless them, they just got an hour of that, and that was a tough show to chew down. <laughs> and that, that, particular, that example of the orangutan joke, that has a really strong internal logic. That has one of those undeniable, that's the premise, there, move on. Yeah. That's a joke joke. That's yeah. a joke you can polish your boots with. Yeah, yeah. That's, but that's what I'm interested in, is jokes and things like that. I love all the stuff that goes around them once you make a show, but I like sitting in a comedy show, set up punchline, set up punchline, set up punchline and I love it when a comic puts all the fripperies around the edge or makes it natural like someone like Carl Donnelly that you're like this is just a lovely mate having a chat but it isn't if you mm-hmm. looked at the script of that set up punchline it's the same with you your your show um must have been two years ago because I wasn't here last year the one with your baby and mm. loving your baby you are an exceptionally personable person on stage. I think we're quite similar in terms of stage presence. But that show, set up punchline, set up punchline, set up punchline, honesty in the middle of the setup or the punchline didn't make any difference to the level of jokes that are in that show. And that's, that's what I love about comedy. And that's what I wanted to get to. And so the jokes came first for this show and then... It was me. It was it was dry meal. It needed some gravy. So kind of <laughs> just like, oh God, make it pleasurable. And then I knew I wanted to write about that holiday in France because it had just been such a life experience out of something so lovely and beautiful. I knew I wanted to write about it. So I did a blog first about it and about playing that game in that park with my siblings um, you did a blog first deliberately as a means of just to get the pieces pre- going. Oh, that's a really interesting yeah. idea. Yeah, right. So what you're doing there is writing a piece of uh, writing. You're making a piece of work about it without any need to be funny. Yeah. So you can actually find out what the salient points are. Yeah. That's a really interesting yeah. technique. I do that quite a lot. The fish story started as a blog mm. as well. Um, you recognise there is something resonant in your subject matter about a thing. Yeah. So let's just write about the thing without yeah. needing to worry about being funny. I think that's a very that's a good weapon. I think I know. do that quite a lot because it took me a long time to convince myself that I could write jokes. I I was half lazy, half unconfident, and be like, I'm not really somebody that sits down and writes jokes. Oh God, it's easy to tell yeah. yourself that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Lovely. And I am, and I was. I just yep. was scared to. So I've taught myself to do that. But yeah, we'll quite often write a piece of prose that will be gently humorous or prose just is nice. the word I was looking for Thank <laughs> you. you know you wrote some writing yeah, yeah you wrote some <laughs> writing down um, so quite often do that and then see where the meat is and then go back and punch it up and then when I go back and punch it up I will look at a printout thing and put a little red dot everywhere that there should be a laugh when said out loud and make sure there's a red dot on at least every other line to make sure now that it's gone from being a lovely chat to being jokes because I want that. Um, so I did that with the France story and then s- started to weave that through a little bit and didn't have an ending for a long time but and didn't have the beginning either. So all the, the this show trying opens with quite a lot of nostalgia about the, the early holidays that I went on. I think that was the last bit to be added to the show because it was still just a little bit too much of a hit to come in without a little bit of of 
what Paul Duncan McGarity referred to yesterday as trout tickling. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, I'm a comedian. That's uh, Dara yeah. Redbrian's take of that. Yeah. yeah, you've got to open with some yeah. trout tickling. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But then that's been a, such a funny thing at this festival that now the more people have known what the show's about, they've sat through the the the... McGarity tea By all means, tickle everyone else here, but I know what I've came yeah, for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which has then been like going against all my instincts of comedy that they've gone, yeah, it's very sweet, Poppet, thanks for doing this, but don't patronise us, get to it, we're ready. We want and tears and we want them yeah, now. what a revelation that that, 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 fascinating, fascinating. But then I'm, I'm, what I've liked about the way that this show's built is that there is this lovely, like, little bit of tickling at the top. Um, and then, it all does come back round in callbacks through the show, which for me is important for how much I believe in the show to know that that isn't just a warm-up for it. That stuff is important to set the vibe and then to come back to where we get to and to get to know me so that you know why this holiday story is wrapping through and you know why not having a baby is killing me. Like, you you have to know all of that to really get get the whole show because it. I hope it is emotional for people as well as funny. Can I fact-check an element of your show? At yeah. one point you say... Um, uh, that you considered adoption, but the depression is problematic yeah. in that term. Is that an actual thing you were told? No, no, that's a joke. Um, and is the purpose of that joke to uh, elide, to sort of glide over people in the audience who might be thinking, well, adopt them? I think the purpose of that joke is... I think... Gosh, I don't know clearly. I reckon... What's going to come out of my mouth now? I, I, I thought one of the ongoing elements of your show, given that you are two years into trying to have a child, which is in and of itself not an unreasonable amount of time to spend trying to conceive. Do you know what I mean? That's not mm. like... It's not like we've been trying for ten years. Do you yeah, know what I mean? That, yeah. it's not, that's not a heightened amount no, of time. No, no. Um, so I wondered whether... Yes, yeah, so, sorry, I'm just talking about... I think that show is more about my own guilt, about not being able to switch off a partial desire for a biological child, despite all of the fears that I have for the world and for myself. I think that joke is a dig at myself of going, why do you think you need to recreate yourself? You're not very good. You are sad all the time and you are, you're not the cleverest, you're not the physically strongest or interesting. What makes you think it's important for there to be another you? I think that joke is me going, just don't breed another you then. You're not, which is something that I've really battled with through all this trying, is that is that I don't understand why it mattered to me to have a biological kid when I have so many problems with who I am and I don't think I'm a very special or, or impressive or interesting person and yet 
something happens to your body that goes, make another one. And I'm so scared of having a baby and feeling guilty that, that a person would exist purely to satisfy me. That's, that's been the trigger when I got into... Sorry if this is now too morose, you can cut this, but um, when I got into therapy and we started talking about it and all I wanted to talk about was climate change because that's what I was scared of. And my therapist like played along for a couple of weeks and then she went, but it's not climate change, is it? It's, that's not what, what this is about. What, what is this? And the more we dug through the therapy, we got to it that I am scared of feeling selfish by having a baby and I'm scared of that kid resenting me because I would be a bad parent and I had to deal with that 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 uh, the actual thing that tipped me over the edge that manifested itself in a climate change obsession which is a thing to be worried about please don't stop <laughs> you know stop making jokes to lighten the situation but the thing that pushed me over the edge was that I'm petrified of being a disappointment and having made a person that that would be angry with me for not being good enough but at the same time I can't not want that because that's what I want and I can't not want to give that to my husband because I think having another him in the world would be amazing he's the best uh you're the best Laura Lex <laughs> No, I'm not. Um, well, you're certainly not the worst. No, I'm not the worst. Have you, now, you've been, <laughs> therapy-wise, you've been doing CBT? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, and I, have, I must tread very carefully here. I have experienced a lot of therapy over many years. I have <laughs> never done therapy on another person, nor have I qualified <laughs> at all to do so, and particularly as someone who is still undergoing therapy. Are you I have actually finished. No, you finished, yeah. okay. Um, uh... Did they? Did you stumble across the phrase "dare to be average"? That's a kind oh, of a no, common CBT thing. <laughs> Stop trying to be an incredible parent and just be you. Yeah. Just dare to be average. Yeah. Dare, you know, probably that was I. That was kind of plugged into me because perfectionism was a thing that was making me right. really unhappy. Yeah. And I certainly remember the idea. Like for me, my my fear, one of my main fears upon the idea of becoming a father, was that I would have a kid who, yeah, absolutely would would um, the fear of having a kid and passing on the legacy of anxiety to my kid, that yeah. was a huge one for me, that I've spent 15 or probably 20 years now in and out of various therapists' office and I, offices, and I thought, I don't want to create a person who is capable of feeling as bad yeah. as sometimes I feel. Yeah. Fucking hell. That, you know, the idea of, like, I don't want to bestow that upon it. Hey, I made you. You might occasionally feel like this. <laughs> Soz, yeah. deal with that. Totally, you know. yeah, yeah. It's really frightening. Yeah, but then you have to look at it, like, I guess that's one of the nice things of being one of four kids, is that they all get different things. I'm the absolute spit emotionally of my mum, but I also have my dad's belligerence of just powering through and then crying afterwards so I'm desperately terrified all the time but it doesn't stop me doing it I just deal with the aftermath once the adrenaline's gone by myself quietly somewhere else and I think so yeah I reckon I can say this on this podcast but we actually are going to adopt a kid so we have put 
trying aside because it was just we don't want to do IVF we kind of just put it all back in the box and went right we'll we'll adopt and the second we'd made that decision and I got to know that (laughs) I will find a kid somewhere and give them Tom my husband give them my sisters as aunts give them my my nephews as cousins that all of well a lot of this fear that had just been tearing me up just washed out of my system great work man (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i started crying as soon as you started talking about (laughs) this this is a very unusual thing it's you you're supposed to cry (laughs) that sounds fucking great mate i wish you all the the luck in the world with uh, with that process and what a brilliant thing to have arrived at that decision it feels it feels new scary but right it feels right now that's a good feeling it feels really cool Uh, yeah i I imagine in a couple of years there'll be a show about how ridiculous the adoption process well i mean a tiny (laughs) awful comedian part of me thought you must have made a decision not to end the show with that clever save it for next time (laughs) if you stay through the whole credits I just (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm mouthing it as people walk out oh fucking good for you yeah I'm excited about that and I I know but just since we come back to the concept of adoption I feel just in order to stave off angry emails I I do completely uh, own that that was a clumsy question I didn't mean to say I'm sat there thinking, well, come on, mate, adopt. As if, that, <laughs> as if that's an easy process or an easy decision to go through. What I, what I was talking, I yeah. hope, was obvious at the time, was like voices in the audience might be. Sort of yeah. Voice. It's funny like that, though. Like you, You'll know this. Like, this show is, you know, totally honest. I've, I've been as honest as I can be in this show. But you do have to tweak little details, like... Um, uh, I don't actually have three brothers and sisters. <laughs> <laughs> I do, <laughs> I do, but, like, Sarah's husband was on that holiday with us. Sure. But I think it makes more sense as a story for him not to be there because yes. otherwise I've then, where telling it the way I do now, I can very quickly fire off a, mine wasn't there, Sarah's wasn't there, Megan's punchline. Yes. Well, I, 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 Which, my, my comics brain sensed that one. I yeah. was like, yeah, I don't believe you. But, I, if, but I'm, I'm happy to believe yeah, you because I get it. Yeah, yeah, if I weave Sarah's husband into the story, one, I've got to explain that he's also called Tom and so is my husband, which, yes, there's a chance for the callback from the fact that as kids we were both married to fictional Dave. But I've then got to explain so much meat that yeah. you, you... It's called poetic licence yeah. and we're allowed to yeah. use it too. you melt the fat down to get to the muscle so that the... Yeah. So Horrifying that, analogy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny though, like, which bits end up kind of being... Like, oh, I'll just slightly tweak that so that... And then you have to look back at it. Whereas with another show, I wouldn't care whatsoever... Um, whether I'd lied or whatever with this one, every time I needed to slightly adjust for the for the um, the storyline, um, I had to double check with myself: Am I okay with that? Like, yeah. I've also slightly fudged the timeline because I had the whole breakdown before we started trying. Okay, we'd made the decision to go to do it, and I had the breakdown before we'd even started trying, which didn't make any sense narratively. It was confusing in a lot of previews, yes. so I had to and kind of... And requires too much explanation, yeah, way too the much, yeah. whereas I was like, it's the same story, but if I just make the timeline so that the breakdown happened whilst trying, 
that makes more sense narratively and just allows us to get on with it quicker. Did you cut jokes from the show? Did mm-hmm. you, it sounds like you had, I mean, the jokes in it are so kind of good and clear and succinct. One would imagine you wrote a lot more than that and yeah. picked the best ones. Which, what were the decisions? What underpinned the decisions to remove some jokes as opposed to others? Um, I cut jokes. I have a bit of a tendency to write um, similes more often than other types of jokes. So I would go, which is a bit like blah, blah, blah. Um, I remember spotting a couple of those, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I I fall into that pattern a lot, that, that I can be a bit repetitive in the type of joke that I'm writing. So I had to go back through with a comb and just weave out a few of those. So I cut one halfway through the run that I had a joke about depression and pregnancy being very similar because you don't start showing for four months and I wouldn't advise staying friends with people that drink through it. Um, But then that one came just before the joke about me being very similar to my new mum friends and then I list the ways we're similar and they were just too formulaic back to back. Mm -hmm. So And the the drinking one just kept shocking people more than making them laugh and Mm -hmm. that I think it's funny but they didn't so they get what they want. They they paid for the ticket. It's quite empowering, isn't it, to uh, to cut stuff mid run? Yeah, like, hey, I yeah. can just cut that. Yeah, you keep adding stupid side ad libs, so that's fine. Um, what else did I cut? Um, what else did I cut from this show? I the, I suppose the other bit that's changed a lot being up. Well, actually, no. So another bit that really changed. Um, was the ending uh, for the better. So the ending where I start with the soap dispenser, I had a whole six-minute routine on ridiculous soap dispensers um, and why they update, like what sales meeting is happening where salespeople are convincing restaurants that if the the soap dispenser isn't top-notch, people won't come back, or like TripAdvisor reviews where like the food was lovely, but it was a Kimberly Clark from like, <laughs> 97. I had like a whole bit there, and it didn't need it. It's That's not important. And for Jess Vostokoo, the director, she kept needling me on that bit and going... You don't need that. You don't need to have that routine there. I know you want it because you feel safer in routines, but let that bit breathe on topic. You don't need to go down that alleyway. And I held out for so long. And no, it's really important. It's really important that the end is... And she just needed... I carved that joke into (laughs) my own sweat and I deserve to use it. She was absolutely right. And so now it's boiled down to pretty much being a vehicle that kicks off that bit. And it does weave back in, but it, there's nothing like the the structure that was there before in that bit. And what were the what were some of the harder things about working with a director? What were some of the what what were kind of tangible things like that? Like you know, like her saying, "Come on, let go of that bit." What were the most useful things that that Jess did for you? Oh, um... did with you. Having the outside eye on the look of the whole thing was really helpful for this show because I really trust myself as a writer and as a performer, but having somebody else to look at the movement of the piece as a... as a... 
of flow and what it's like to be in it. Um, and to push me, push me to be vulnerable, which is, if this show is the first thing of mine that you see, I don't think you'd know how different this is to everything else I do. And you know what? That's been like a real anxiety voice in my brain all month that's been scaring me, is that I, whilst doing this show at five o'clock that's all open and visceral, I then trot along to Spank at midnight and host Spank, which is a midnight till 3am party in a cave where I get somebody naked every show and it is as clubby as a night comes and I love that too and I've been so scared that someone will accuse this trying show of being fake because how can I be that vulnerable there and then be out going... at midnight that's been a massive terror that 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 what if somebody was sat in trying and really knew that thought that was what I was mostly like and then that same night popped along to Spank and went what so was the whole thing a lie and that kind of fear do you think anyone logically in the cold light of day do you think with the I mean you you set out your stall very carefully in trying that you are different people yeah yeah. Do you think logically anyone could go, oh, the whole thing was a lie? Logically, they could, and that's their right, but I know it isn't, and I think everybody that knows what anxiety and what having that, that undermining voice in your head constantly, I know it isn't, and that's all I care about this year. Yeah, I'm scared of somebody, like, swiping my legs out by accusing me of that. And, yeah, it would take me out for a day of fear. My, my intention with that question was, like, come on, mate, no-one's going to do that. <laughs> but, but, yeah, no, I don't... Yeah, maybe they would or wouldn't, but it doesn't stop that being the anxiety that sits there. Um, I, think, I think Jess just pushed me to be honest she watched the video of tyrannosaurus lex and she said you've got the the you've got the punch now if you're okay about letting people in a bit yeah that's what i was talking about before i got myself confused i um i think if this is the first thing people see me do they wouldn't understand quite how much of a stretch it is for, for me personally to have done this show because it isn't who i've ever been as a comic before and it is something I'm really proud of having done. I'm not sure it's something I want to do again. I think I'm really looking forward to going back to a comedy club and mm-hmm. and not having everybody know the ins and outs, but I'm so grateful to her for helping me dig this, this show out of this material because left to my own devices, I possibly could have done a lot of this material in a very different way. Mm. And I don't think it would ever have meant as much to me or to audiences as it has having done it this way. If you come back in a year or two with a show that is less intended to be emotionally arresting, will the people who saw you this year come back and go... Mm. Why isn't the woman crying? <laughs> um, maybe, but I don't think so, because I think mostly what people have got in touch about with this show is gone, God, it was nice to laugh 
through that. And people have said, I sat there streaming and laughing. And that's what they've taken away. I don't think anybody's come and gone, thanks for giving me an hour to just sob. And, you know, I haven't made a Kate Blanchett film. I think I've made something where people are giggling through tears if they've connected to it and some people aren't crying at all because it's not their world they're going this is interesting is that what anxiety is like but but also I hope what I've done with this show is 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 say that like yeah like we were just saying about the different people you are that yeah I'm going to do this show now but I don't want to be the sad mental health comic all the time and I have no intention of pandering to that I'm, that's not who I am all the time and that's not what mental health is. But can you synthesise the upbeat delivery with the honesty of this show? I don't understand the question. Like, like this show, maybe what we're attracted to is not, I'm just supposing, maybe what we're attracted to with this show is less the specifics of the story, it's less the plot... And it's more how honest you're being with us and how how much you're kind of opening yourself. Maybe yeah. it's maybe down the line. What I mean is you could have a show that is as connecting, that is as engaging, as sticky as this show, without more difficult things needing to happen in your life to talk yeah, about. Do you know what I mean? that would be nice. <laughs> 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 it? Certainly not going to go seeking out anything else to be sad about just for a show. Yeah, I hope so. Maybe. I think what the show has really done for me in, in terms of confidence is, is make myself trust my jokes and trust my performance so that, yeah, I will be able to approach subjects with more and not have to rely on the easy joke ever again or not as often. So, yeah, maybe I will be able to address everything just with a bit more of a peek behind the curtain as well as the jokes. Yeah, that would be nice. I certainly, I know my writing has changed over the last year and a half. I've got more in my club set now that that I wouldn't have had I wouldn't have known how to handle that and uh, ideas and I think before I'd always have the odd one liner here and there on a subject and then be furiously outraged when people didn't pick up the issues I was talking about and then you look back and go well because it was one line in the middle of a very middle of the road routine so you'd have to be incredibly perceptive to have clung to that amongst all the the marriage jokes whereas now I can go right I want to talk about this and so like I've got a routine at the moment that's not in this show that's just sort of I'm poodling about with it's about the gender pay gap and how I blame primary school PE for it for teaching boys football and girls netball because there's no future in netball Mm. Um, whereas football is a social lubricant and a job and everything and there's no reason not to teach it to girls they just don't or I think they are starting to now just really ruined this bit but that, that that is a a 10 minute set piece where i am running around playing a game of netball and commenting on gender politics and the, and all of this stuff and making that work on a saturday night is like such a testament to how much more faith i've got in in myself 
Um, so hopefully I won't have anything that makes me fall back from that, that that will just keep coming. And where do you want to be in comedy? What's the, what's the blue sky, you know, dream, what's the dream scenario 10 years from now? Uh, 10 years from now, I would love to be doing a proper big tour, proper big tour of like a full show. Um, I've done, I've got a lot of writing stuff on the back burner that I would love to come off. I've got a television script that's been optioned that we're just looking for a channel for now. Um, I would love to be able to do that because I think there's a lot of stuff that I want to write and talk about that, that isn't the that stand up isn't the best format for so to be able to do that would be great i want to be a a presenter of things i want to be the hello welcome this week these are my guests on either side out yeah i want to do it all i want to do a whole mix of the glossy tv shows to driving about with my tour support doing a tour and i would like to do everything and it's taken me a really long time to be okay about admitting that and not being like, oh, you know, just whatever happens. Like, nope, I've got plans. <laughs> I want to do all of it. Why did uh, why why was it difficult to admit that you had plans? Um, I think because I felt like because I didn't blast quickly and become like best special newcomer and the big <laughs> hot new thing that I was supposed to then sit back and, and pretend I hadn't wanted that anyway and that I wanted to be a comic earning £70 a night <laughs> minus fuel and, and everything. And I don't, I do like that. I really like that and I'm really grateful for that. I love the clubs. I want to keep doing those. But yeah, I also, I want to do all the other stuff too. Thanks, man. No, thank you. So that was Laura. Thank you so much to her for coming along. To her, to you, Laura, if you're re-listening, if you could bear to. I know lots of people don't like to. Um, but thank you to Laura for, for coming and being on the show and being so candid and making me cry. Uh, I, you know, I got a lot out of that. I, I, that was a, a really exciting one. It's so It's so lovely the longer you stay in this industry when you see people start and think hey they're good and then you see them putting in the the hours and the road miles and you think oh, i hope something happens for them because they deserve it and then you see it happen and it's a or begin to happen i'm sure and it's a very exciting process so thank you uh, to you for listening thanks to nathan wood for editing and uploading the show thanks to jake crossland for logging pete dobbing for the uh, being the podcast consultant Rob Smouten for the music. Hey, the Secret Santa is still going on. You've got one more week to sign up to the uh, ComCom Pod Secret Santa, uh, where we all forward interesting bits of comedy ephemera that we've accumulated over the years. You don't need to spend any money besides a bit of postage, and you will get something fun back from another Secret Santa. Uh, Santa. Um, so follow the link in the show notes to do that. Uh, remember, you can get extra material, uh, including stuff about a comedy competition and the differences between what audiences and industry are looking for in a festival show. From this conversation with Laura Lex and myself, that is available to the private Insiders Club podcast at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Um, that's everything. It's Christmas gig season. If you're a gigging comedian, stay strong. And in the words of Alan Cochran, turn off your ego in December. Uh, I'll be around for a post-amble in just a second if you'd like to stick around, but that concludes the podcast. Bye for now. 
that was good timing. I just, there was a little rattle outside that would have meant a retake, but uh, unnecessary now because the timing worked. Hello, time for a little post-amble with you cats. Uh, what have I done? What have I been up to recently? I just did some, uh, I just did a little bit of TV warm-up for the, the programme Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, now hosted by Jeremy Clarkson. And it's fascinating I find warm-up absolutely fascinating. You get to be a different person. I don't do very much of it anymore. I used to do tons and tons sitcom, long, long sitcom records where you'd be on and off and on and off all night. Um, And I don't do much now, but it is very exciting to uh, see telly get made from a sort of insider perspective. It's very fun to be hovering around next to floor managers and camera operators and, and sound technicians and being ignored by lighting people as they've got bigger fish to fry. Um, but uh, it's it's good. One of the things, it's quite, it's quite exciting going into, obviously, a show that's like a big name, recognisable show like Millionaire. A- absolutely as captivating in the room as it is uh, watching at home. And you don't need to put up with advert breaks because they roll stru- straight through those. Obviously, there is, if you're the warm-upper, this other minor matter of having to go on if anything goes wrong and cover for an indefinite amount of time. And that it's a, it's a, a room that isn't, you know, it's set up for a tense quiz game more than it's set up for a, a, an easy stand-up gig, let's say. But I really enjoyed myself. And um, it's just fun being watching something happen and being of it and not of it. Like, that's one of the fun things about being a warm-up is you get to... One of an, an early summer job of mine was I used to be the court jester at Warwick Castle, and there was something so lovely a about walking into that fabulously preserved medieval castle on a sunny morning on like a Tuesday morning in the summer holidays. I mean, they were holidays; it was sort of like a studenty job, uh, and walking in before any punters were allowed in, and there was only a few of us that were kind of costume characters, and even within that, the jester is a very—I mean, you know—we're all. We've all got the same um, uh, contract, as it were. You know, there's me, the Red Knight, Kev, the Archer, <laughs> and uh, all, all the other people, Noel, the Jailer. Um, but even though I was sort of technically the same as all the other costumed entertainers, I was the jester, which carried with it a certain amount of licence. I was a bit more freelance and a bit more free to kind of make up whatever it, it was that I wanted to do than even than the other people who got to walk between the raindrops. You know, there's like the, the kind of the, the hierarchy of how much freedom you have. The jester is sort of quite near the top of that and also the lowest of the low. The point I'm making is that there's a similar experience when you do television warm up that you're not the crew and you're not the, the talent, the on screen talent. And you're not a guest or contestant or whatever the sort of public facing bit. And you're not the audience. You're this other remote uh, kind of satellite and you get to be it's quite fun you get to sort of sneak around <laughs> you get to sneak around stealing cakes and um and not know where you are and i think in 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 previous i was in a studio that i'd never been in before there was only one two actually members of the crew that i knew one of them quite well but i think whenever i've turned up to those sort of environments in the past you feel it's quite a challenging environment for your self-belief for your self-confidence because you um everyone knows what they're doing and you feel completely separate to it and and you feel like you could screw everything up like what if i stand in the wrong place and they've got a a, someone bumps into me when they're using a camera and i cost untold thousands 
of pounds worth of damage. I mean, it's probably more of an insight into my psyche than it is to the actual job itself. But I've, you know, you don't get so much as a health and safety briefing. When you're the warm-up, everyone just assumes you know what you're doing. And then the longer you do it, the more you realise that, if, you know, the sound people don't necessarily know, the lighting people don't necessarily know the, the, the floor managers or the director. So you're, you're part of, it's not a hive that you need to smear yourself in pollen in order to, to get access to, although that is part of the process. Um, but it, it's this kind of finely working machine made up out of uh, uh, whatever, they're, not ingredients, you know, bits in a machine, bits, parts, moving parts, not all of whom have been introduced to each other. So you don't really know them. They don't know each other often. And, um, and so you recognise that. Eventually, I've been doing it for long enough that it's quite empowering to go, I know where I'm going. I know where I need to stand and not stand. And I'm in a strange environment. And it all in all, it was, you know, it wasn't an easy gig. It was hard work. It was really good fun. It was really good fun. And then I, um, and then you get to have a pint with the floor manager afterwards and stay in a hotel and get seven hours sleep in a row. <laughs> Look, I've, I've said for a few of these, I'm not going to mention the children, but seven hours sleep in a row is great, even if you're not a parent. And being in a big hotel in a proper bed, not on a sofa in a different room, trying to, you know, change, do shift changes and stuff, looking after, um, I won't say babies, I've said babies, but um, I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And then I got on a train and thought, oh, it's Saturday, I'll do some, I'll do a bit of Christmas shopping in London. <laughs> and then you look at London and go, this is awful. What fresh hell is this? Oh, God, what stale hell is this? Christmas, it's December the 1st today, I'm on uh, recording this, and um, it's gone absolutely nuts out there, plus Christmas trees. And come January, I may, if I remember, uh, I may attempt to do an audio impression for you, which I've stolen from my wife, which is my wife's impression of a Christmas tree in January. And it's a very funny and very sad impression. So we've all we've all got that to look forward to. That's enough rambling for now. Um, uh... Is that it? Doing a gig? Is that... Oh, God, it's Christmas gigs tonight. So that was... It, it wasn't a Christmas gig last night because it was a warm-up. Um, tonight, my first Christmas gigs, that thing Alan said, you know, keep your uh, keep your ego switched off in December. Let's see if I can manage that because I'm closing too. I'm, I'm headlining. No, let's be honest, closing. To, the distinction there is that if you refer to yourself as a headliner, it's like you're saying you're better than the other people on the bill. And the point I'm about to make is that everyone else on both of these bills that I'm that I'm doing tonight, that I'm doubling in uh, the comedy carnival clubs in in central London. Uh, every act on the bill and the MCs are superb and uh, very much headliners themselves. So it's one of those, you know, sometimes when you're closing, you're last on or slash headlining, whatever you want to call it, and you do think to yourself, I'm the right guy for the job. This. Everyone on the bill is a stone-cold closer, and I'm going to have to work for my money again. Imagine that. Imagine having to work. But I'm, I'm looking forward to it. But then it is December, so it really could go either way. I'll, I'll fill you up on this. I'll fill you up. That's not a phrase. I'll catch you up on this and fill you in on it later on. Um, probably check my Twitter history to see how much I grumbled or celebrated. Everything to play for. Speak to you soon. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.